1 Samuel chapter 19 is where we pick up. At this point, as we saw last time, the jealousy of Saul has grown incredibly towards David. Of course, David being a part of the full-time palace staff, if you would, at this point, and really one of uh, Saul's primary military generals going out leading military campaigns, being very successful. It says that David, wherever he went, where Saul sent him, behaved wisely, and he was just sort of becoming very successful. God was prospering him in the battles that he would launch. The troops were rallying behind David, and of course we saw that sort of the tables turned when they were then returning from a great slaughter against the Philistines, and it tells us that as the uh, women and the greeting party came out of the town as they were sort of the welcoming home parade that they began to sing that song Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands and at that point it says that Saul was very angry this displeased Saul because they realized he realized at this point that that David was beginning to gain more attention he was jealous of David's accomplishments at this point and it says in chapter 18 verse 9 from that point Saul eyed David from that day forward. That is, he viewed him with suspicion. There was jealousy, uh, the insecurity in Saul's heart, and the competitive nature, and just that desire to want to have prominence was greatly irritated because he feels very insecure and realizes there's something about this young man, David, that's so evident uh, that the hand of God is upon him. The people love David, the Bible tells us, and so much so that Saul was actually beginning to fear David and be afraid of him. Remember Saul said, uh, what more can he have but the kingdom? I mean, the only thing he could do at this point is rob me of my throne. And there's just this sense of insecurity and fear in, in Saul's heart at this point. And remember, it tells us so much so that that distressing spirit came upon Saul once again. And not once, but twice, he actually threw a spear at David, tried to assassinate David and pin him to the wall with the spear. David eluded that. And it just tells us that from that point forward, Saul continued to look for repeated opportunities to destroy David. He wants to eliminate David's presence. David speaks to him of the presence of God, and that's convicting to him. Uh, David speaks to him of what's right and so much of what his life reflected of, of what was wrong and the contrast of David's life. And it says that Saul became David's enemy continually. In fact, so much so that he even sought to use, remember, his own daughter, one of his daughters, Michael to be given to David as a wife and it says that Saul actually said this is fantastic my daughter is in love with David because if I marry her to him she will be a snare for him in his life and something about what he knew about his daughter Michael he saw Saul did that something about her nature we'll see more of that tonight what he was referring to would be a snare in David's life because it would hinder David's spiritual life and we talked about the kind of the sadness of how a spouse can be an incredible asset and an incredible blessing and support to our spiritual life or by the same token a spouse can be the biggest snare in the world to someone's spiritual life and cause a constant struggle and conflict. And so Saul actually was trying to marry his daughter to David to actually try and stumble David, to trip him up. Got to the point where we saw the beginning of chapter 19 where we left off last time that Saul then spoke in the presence of all his servants and his generals 
saying that they should just directly kill David. So a, a, a murderous plot has now been put out on David's life. There's no more uh, trying to figure this out. It's evident he's actually asking for David to be put to death. At that point, we saw as we left off in chapter 19 last time, Jonathan, remember David's close friend who loved David, advocated and interceded on David's behalf and said, Dad, I don't understand. Why do you want to kill David? He's done nothing to sin against you. Uh, he, he loves you. He's been loyal to you. He's been nothing but helpful to you and to your kingdom. He fights your battles. He's gone out and taken on Goliath. He plays worship music when you're disturbed and upset. And for a brief time, it tells us that sort of Jonathan was able to bring a reconciliation, it seemed, between uh, David and Saul once again where David could safely come back into the palace around where the throne was and Saul swore that he would not kill David but we're going to see this is very short-lived uh, that Saul is willing to sort of concede and let David back into the palace and minimize his aggression look at chapter 19 verse 8 because it then tells us there was war again and David went out and fought with the Philistines and again, notice, struck them with a mighty blow and they fled from him. So David continues to be faithful in his military role. God is honoring his works and his labors. These military campaigns continue to be successful and David continues to prosper because the hand of the Lord is upon David's life. And because the hand of the Lord is upon David's life and, and God's hand and anointing is upon David's life, everything that David is doing, God is blessing, God's prospering it. He's accomplishing great victories. And of course, this just causes more irritation and jealousy in the insecure heart of Saul at this point. And verse 9 says, Now the distressing spirit from the Lord again came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. It's interesting as he just sat in his house. Perhaps if Saul would have been bow out on the battlefield doing things, that might have been a little more healthy and therapeutic, but there's something about isolation and sitting around and thinking too much. And here's Saul, he's sitting in the house, just holding his spear with, you know, you know, stewing over his own frustrations and animosities and disappointments and all the, you know, struggles going on inside of Saul at this point. He's just sitting there with a spear, stewing over all this stuff in his house why David's out being productive and doing what he should do and fighting battles and accomplishing things staying busy and occupied and the distressing spirit comes upon King Saul once again as he's in his house with his spear in his hand never good when this guy has a spear in his hand and David look what David's doing again as often he would was playing music with his hand so at that point, Saul then, notice verse 10, sought to pin David to the wall with the spear again. But David slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. So take note here, verse 9 and 10. Again, the contrast between these two men. In Saul's hand... An individual who's not right with God, he, he's not in right relationship with the Lord. In Saul's hand, what is there? There's a weapon of war and someone who's distressed and miserable and is looking to do nothing other than have intentions to hurt other people. And that's Saul. He's got a spear in his hand. 
And in his hand is a weapon of war. What's in David's hand? An instrument of worship. David's got a, a, an ancient guitar or a harp in his hand. He's got an instrument of worship. David's interested in honoring God and helping people, where Saul is interested in holding a weapon of war and with an intention of hurting people. And Saul's spiritual promise, you can see, to not harm David that we saw back at the beginning of the chapter in verse 6, it didn't last very long. Not very long at all. And it was a, somewhat of a spiritually cloaked promise. He didn't keep his word because look at verse 6. What did he say to Jonathan? He said to Jonathan, he says, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Now, let me just say, in one sense, that's prophetically true because the hand of God was going to preserve David. So in a sense, what Saul didn't realize is Saul speaking kind of, you know, is, is uh, he won't be killed. Doesn't mean I won't try, but he won't be killed. <laughs> Now, Saul doesn't know that. Saul, in a sense, is trying to give indication. That's it. I'm okay. I'm at peace with him now, and I promise I won't harm him anymore. But again, please take notice here. Just because people use spiritual talk as the Lord lives, just because people use spiritual talk or spiritual jargon or they act sincere is not an assurance that people are going to be faithful to what they say. Uh, you know, many times we say, oh, I want to tell you, I want to show that. I'm willing to listen, but a lot of times when people want to tell me, you know, a lot of times I say, that's great, but I would just rather you just show me. Because words are so, I mean, it's so easy to say things. It's so easy to use spiritual talk and spiritual jargon and, you know, quote a Bible verse and this and that. And, you know, it's very easy to say the right things, but it's not easy to do the right things. Have you ever noticed that? It's very easy to just, in a moment, say, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. I promise that's not going to happen anymore. I'm not going to do that again, or I'm not going to... And, and Saul does that, uses spiritual talk, but it's very clear he's not sincere because in a very short amount of time, he goes right back trying to murder David again. He throws another spear at the guy and tries to murder him the very next time he's in the palace. This is now the third attempt of Saul directly by himself to assassinate David, but again, the Lord protects him. And may I draw your attention again, though we mentioned it last week, it's worthy to mention again, since this is now the third attempt of Saul trying to throw a spear and put David to death to pin him to the wall, that again, and I emphasize the word again, David does not give in to the temptation to retaliate. He again does not give in to the temptation to take revenge or take matters into his own hands and end his problem. And David, I assure you, could have very well done that. Maybe Saul missed with the spear or maybe David escaped it because the hand of God graciously preserved and protected him as he was being mistreated and trying to be harmed by someone in his life. But David could have very easily took that spear, I assure you, and ran that thing right through Saul and put a real quick end to his problem. And so many times, this is a very difficult thing in our lives because maybe there's that individual, that Saul in our life where, you know, they're chucking spears at us. They're continually saying things or doing things, mistreating us. Maybe it's somebody in our job or a relative or someone close to us that continually is trying to harm us and continuing to do things that would or just be destructive in our lives. And it's really difficult when you're ducking spears and having to you know, deal with that, to not want to retaliate and to throw spears back and to do that. But if we want to honor the Lord and do what's right in his sight, like David here, he doesn't give in to the temptation because he wants to honor God. And what does he do? It says that David, verse 10, simply fled and escaped 
that night. Basically, David wisely seeks to remove himself from a dangerous and unhealthy situation. He realizes being in the presence of Saul is not a good thing. It's just not a good thing because he tends to chuck spears at me and, you know, I'm only going to last as long. And, and perhaps part of it was David just fleeing temptation. The Bible says, you know, that when temptation comes, we should just flee youthful lust. Sometimes just running from temptation is the wisest thing. And here David just eliminates being in the presence of Saul at this moment and just seeks to remove himself. Reminds me of what Jesus even did. In John 10, it says that they sought to seize Jesus, but he escaped out of their hand. Again, even Jesus, think of it. This is the Son of God, God in flesh. When they tried to seize and take Jesus, I mean, he could have fought back and threw him off and did some incredible, I'm sure, moves that just really harmed people. But instead, Jesus just escaped. He just removed himself from the situation and he just got himself out of the presence of what was not healthy and good. Proverbs 22 and Proverbs 27, again, there's a repeated proverb. It says this, a prudent man foresees evil ahead and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Again, the Bible says that's prudence when you can realize, you know what, that path, being in the presence of that person, that situation, that's only going to result in something evil and unhealthy. And you're prudent when you say, I can see that ahead of time, so I'm going to avoid that. I'm going to take a, a, a exit ramp before that situation comes to pass. But he says it's the simple, foolish individual that just passes on and ends up suffering as a result. So David here, he flees Saul now the third time. Verse 11, so Saul then sent messengers to David's house. This guy's not going to give up. To watch him and to kill him in the morning. So basically what Saul does now is that he sends out literally a, a group of hitmen. I mean, this is like ancient mafia here. He sends a group of hitmen. He says, Look, hey, he might have got out of the palace and dodged my spear. So he brings in some of his, no doubt, you know, professional assassins, trained hitmen. And he says, go to David's house, surround his house. When he steps out of the door in the morning, that's it. Just, just do him in. You can let him have one good night's rest, but that, that's it. So they're now surrounding a group of assassins, David's house. So Michael, his wife told him saying if you do not save your life tonight she warns him tomorrow you will be killed she says look i know my dad i know what he's like he's disturbed he has issues and, and he's not stable and he sent these men to kill you he's tried to kill you three times himself and so she says i'm warning you if you don't do something tonight to, to get away to preserve yourself you're going to end up being dead in the morning so she is just kind of trying to warn her husband uh, giving him the signal here look that your, your life is in great jeopardy so michael verse 12 let david down through a window and he went and fled and escaped and michael then took an image and laid it in the bed put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with clothes so when Saul sent messengers to date David, she said to the messengers, he is sick. So what happens here is she sends David away. He somehow lowered down through the window. He escapes and he flees. But she realizes that when the men would come in the morning, they would quickly recognize that he was gone or I don't know, maybe she was concerned they'd peer through the window. So it seems that Michael here, after David leaves, we get no mention here of David seeing being in 
you know, kind of cahoots with, with this idea that she has here now to put this image in the bed and the hair around it and so forth to kind of make a, a, a prop to kind of look like that David's lying there in bed sick. She's trying to buy David time so that when they come, she can say, look, just he's really sick right now. He can't speak to anyone. He's not going to come out today. And she's trying to delay things, no doubt, to give David more time to, to get on the run, thinking that this was necessary for David to have this extra time. Again, she's not trusting God's protection. She's kind of trying to take matters into her own hand. So she lays this image in the bed here, covers it with uh, clothes, and, and, and puts some goat's hair around the top of the head area there. Now, again, the word image that's used there is the Hebrew term that's often translated teraphim, which is a reference to, to typically household idols, uh, little idols that would be used in the worship of pagan deities to assist people to worship other gods which again begins to maybe indicate to us a little bit of hold on a minute here what in the world is Michael doing having these teraphim these idols these household gods in her house uh, and again as we begin to look at some of this maybe we begin to see some of her character and understand why her father Saul knew that she would be a snare to David because perhaps she was somehow connected to idol worship, perhaps in her private life. And so David's gone. The one who loves God and who's a man after God's own heart. I don't believe David would have allowed household idols to have been in his home as the head of his home, as a spiritual leader. But David's not around. So now all of a sudden she could bring out her little private idolatrous worship system. And so now she begins to bring these things out and uses them as a prop in the bed there and Rather than pray and trust God, we see what else does his wife do? She relies on fleshly practices. She's not a woman that prays, a woman who trusts God. She takes matters into her own hands. She's going to deal with issues in a way that, that to her mind seems practical. And, and as well, we see that she becomes very deceptive and dishonest. She First she says, David's sick. Then they sent messengers, verse 15, back to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed. Saul said, that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. And then Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And then Michael answered Saul, her father, saying, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So, I mean, she really starts fabricating this whole story here. Again, what is she doing? She's obviously not someone who trusts and depends upon God as David did. Instead, she's trying to resolve issues with her own practices and ideas. She's, you know, creating these situations. She's lying about the process because in her mind, she probably thinks that's necessary to help David. Well, listen, it seems noble, but the end doesn't justify the means. She's still lying, She's being dishonest. And then even when her father asks her, why did you deceive me? Why did you do this? She says, well, well I had to. Because David, well, your son-in-law, my, my husband, daddy, he said to me, if you don't let me go, I'm going to kill you. So now what's she done? Now she just made David look worse. Now she just, I mean, now she just told her father that her husband is trying to threaten to kill her. Well, what's that going to do? She's going to enrage Saul all the more. That didn't help the situation. So again, we begin to see some of these things of 
idolatry in her private life and you know not trusting God but relying on the flesh and being a deceptive and dishonest person that no doubt these are the things that become character traits that cause her no doubt to become a snare in David's life because she doesn't have apparently the same relationship with the Lord Yahweh God that David did and so now we begin to see why she would become a snare in David's life by Saul marrying her to him as he did so she makes up this story Saul's further enraged at this point but David now has had some time at least a good 24 hour start to escape and he's on his way again not that he necessarily needed Michael to do this God would have protected him anyway and we're going to see that watch what happens verse 28 so David fled and escaped and he went to Samuel at Ramah and he told him all that Saul had done to him and he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Now, at this point here, what does David do? David is in the midst of a very difficult time in his life. I mean, it's, I think it's a little bit of an understatement to say that he's under tremendous stress. I mean, three times somebody's tried to assassinate him. All these things are going on. There, you know, confusion and frustration. But notice that what, as David's in a difficult time, he's under tremendous stress, he's confused, he's probably angry and frustrated that all these unfortunate things are happening to him, he's not doing anything wrong. But notice what David doesn't do, he does not isolate. He flees, he escapes the situation, but he doesn't go into isolation. Because isolation is never good. It's never good. He goes instead to seek out a spiritual leader for support and counsel. He goes and he finds Samuel. And it says here in verse 18, David fled, escaped, and what did he do? He went to Samuel at his hometown in Ramah, and he told Samuel all that Saul had been doing to him. He just went and he vented to Samuel. And I don't know, I imagine in some ways, maybe part of that conversation was that he went to Samuel and said, Samuel, can I talk to you about something? Everything in my life was going really great when I was just a shepherd boy out in the field. And then one day you came to my town and they called me in from the field and you dumped that oil over my head and you whispered in my ear, you are the next king of Israel. And ever since, everything's horrible in my life. What's the deal with this? You tell me that God's hand is upon me, God's calling is with me, and the Lord's anointed me and has these purposes. And ever since the work of God began in my life, all these counteractive works continue to everybody's trying to kill me and Saul hates me. And, and all of a sudden, all these difficulties are going. And no doubt, David's probably thinking, I don't understand this. I'm trying to honor God here. I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to please the Lord and serve the Lord. Why all these difficulties and hardships? And, and I think he went and sought out Samuel because ultimately David knew if he went to Samuel the prophet that Samuel's probably not going to say what David wants to hear, but he knew at least that Samuel as the prophet of God and spiritual leader would give him the word of God. And I think David knew that. 
And so David goes and seeks him out very wisely and that knowing that Samuel would tell him what he needed to hear to help navigate this situation and just to be a, a support system to him, to pray with him and spend time with him. And it seems that's what they do. They, they go and they stay in Naoth, which means dwelling place. It says Naoth of Ramah. And it seems that where they go now is a place that what we often refer to as the school of the prophets. It says in verse 19 there, it was told Saul saying, take note, David is in Naoth in Ramah and Saul sent messengers to take David and when they saw the group of prophets notice prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them now this seems to be the first indication of something that Samuel did when he kind of went into we could call like semi-retirement if you want to say that's what Samuel did remember he was the last judge of Israel and when the people demanded a king, he regretfully obeyed God and he anointed Saul as the king because the people now wanted a monarchy. They wanted a king over them. And at that point, Samuel kind of retreated from his public role of being the last judge of Israel and a spiritual leader. But we see here, he didn't go into complete retirement and just go boating and fishing and sitting around 24-7 doing nothing. It seems what Samuel did is he went back to Ramah, his hometown, and we see throughout the Old Testament, it seems he established somewhat uh, of sort of an ancient, almost ministry school, often referred to as the school of the prophets, whereas a leader and a more mature prophet of God he had other men around him, probably who had a calling of God upon their life. And it seems that he trained them and prepared them, that he spent time with them, praying and teaching them. And, and it seems that's what's being referred to here of where David went and sought him out in Ramah. And we see now Samuel leading a group of prophets. And Saul has gotten word, we're told in verse 19 to 20, that this is where David has gone. And so Saul now sends his next group of hired assassins to go to Ramah, to the school of the prophets. He sent messengers there to seize and to take David. They're thinking this will be an easy capture. All, all we got to do is, you know, push a few prophets over and, and, and take David and bring him back in cuffs to Saul or assassinate him along the way. But when they saw, notice what happens. The group of prophets prophesying, again, spiritually inspired speech. They could have been praising the Lord or speaking the word of God or kind of like having a, a very intense spirit-filled worship meeting. And Samuel was standing as leader over them. Look what happens, verse 20. The spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers. He sends back a second group. And they prophesied likewise. And then Saul sent messengers again the third time. And they prophesied also. So what's happening is these assassins come. They think they're just going to take control of the situation, capture David and bring him back to Saul and exercise their will. And they don't take control. They're taking control of. God overrules in the situation to protect David, showing his authority over all things. God's preserving his plans and purposes and the power of the Spirit of God at work among that gathering of men was so strong. The presence of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit at work among that gathering as they're prophesying and praying and worshiping together that as each time people showed up to the gathering, the Spirit of God just came upon them in power and they just got caught up right in the middle of what was going on. And here these assassins came there with hatred and anger and murder in their hearts and rebellion and the next thing they know, 
They're worshiping and praying and praising God and speaking the word of God and the Holy Spirit just overtakes them and they're taken over by the presence of the Lord. And I look at this situation and I think, man, instead of God just destroying these men for their evil intentions, instead God mercifully, supernaturally restrains them in a gracious way to keep them from their evil intentions, trying to no doubt humble and break them and instead restrains them supernaturally to protect David. Well, verse 22 says, Then he, Saul, also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku. And he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? You know, if three groups of assassins can't take care of it, take matters into your own hands, right? And indeed, they said, they are at Naoth and Ramah. So he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes. That would be his outer royal garment, the idea is. They'd wear tunics underneath. Stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked. Again, that's with the inner tunic would be a Hebrew reference to nakedness all that day and all that night. And therefore, they say is Saul also among the prophets. So again, Saul comes there and God does the exact same thing. This is the man with all the authority and all the power. And he comes there and thinks that he's going to just orchestrate his plans and purposes and again as i said instead of god just removing saul think of this truly instead of god just removing saul in severe judgment i mean he is there with a murderous intent in his heart he's there to assassinate david to kill him i mean you want to talk about you probably can't get any more evil intentions do you understand i mean this would be like truly and I hate to use this as an illustration, but this would be like walking into this worship meeting this evening with a murderous intention to come and kill someone. This is what Saul is doing. He is going to this school of the prophets where they're seeking God with a murderous intention to take David and to assassinate him. And God supernaturally, miraculously just overpowers him with the spirit of God because the presence of God is so strong among those people that the Spirit of God just falls upon Saul and he literally humiliates himself, strips off his royal robes there in his undergarments, if you would, a very undignified thing for modest Hebrew people. And he's laying there all day and night just speaking words of God <laughs> as God restrains this man and just shows his power. I, mean, I look at this and I think to myself, boy, what a testament as God miraculously does this work is not amazing to see how strong God's protection can truly be. God's preservation. Again, what is in the loins of David? The Messiah. The messianic line is in Jesus' loin, or is in David's loins, that Jesus would come through the lineage. So, so God has a lot at stake here. And so God intervenes here to preserve his plan. And listen, I look at these kind of passages and I think to myself, what a great encouragement because often we think, oh no, what about this and what about that? And they're going to stop and this resistance and that resistance. And sometimes it, it almost saddens me to see how people who are, are, are Christians and a part of the church sometimes get so caught up in feeling that we need to put on the gloves and when you do this and that and debate and picket and fight and strive and this and that, I wonder sometimes 
If we would truly be praying and seeking the presence and the power of the Spirit of the Almighty God instead, if a lot more supernatural preservation and miraculous things would happen than us trying to strive in the flesh to protect God's plan or to preserve God's ways. Listen, I know there's a time and a place to speak the truth. I'm not saying there's not a place for those things sometimes. But I, my personal convictions, I think sometimes we take things way out of balance. It's very easy to go out in public and do all this and fight all these fleshly battles. But for some reason, God's people find it very hard to just lock themselves away like a group of the school of the prophets and just pray and seek and hear God's power so strong among them that God preserves his plan. God preserves his man, David, so that nothing happens to him. Saul's humiliated laying there day and night, just prophesying God's giving David time again to be protected And verse uh, 1 of chapter 20 says, Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah, and he went to Jonathan and said, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So again, David now leaves from this place. He goes back to seek out Jonathan again, his very close comrade and friend, the son of King Saul. And as I said, keep in mind, please don't downplay this, literally, David's facing legitimate death threats. This would be like literally somebody tried to shoot you three times. You can't downplay what, what kind of stress David's really under. I mean, this would be the same thing as if three different times somebody actually tried to shoot you with a gun somewhere and you were able to avoid the bullet shots. I mean, that's a little bit of stress the guy's under. These are legitimate death threats against his life. And David is right and correct about what's happening that Saul wants to kill him. But he's not totally accurate in the reasons behind it. The repeated evidences of the attempts against his life have allowed him to conclude, okay, it's very evident. It's not safe for me to be in the presence of Saul or among the throne. So that part is accurate. He realizes he's a practical man, what God's doing However, being under all the pressure and the struggle of what's going on, I think David here in verse 1 of chapter 20 is having a moment of weakness and discouragement because he goes to his friend Jonathan and I think he's just exasperated. I think he's weary. He's under discouragement of what's going on, all the hardships. He's feeling confused. He's trying to figure out why all these difficult circumstances keep happening in his life and in his humanity he goes to his good friend and look what he says. He says, what? He asks the same kind of questions that we would, right? What have I done? What did I do? What did I do so wrong that all these hard things are going on in my life? He's saying, what is my sin? What am I guilty of? Now look, certainly I always think it's good to do inventory. Nothing ever wrong like Psalm 139 to say, search me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Sometimes some of our hardships are the result of things we have done. And if so, we need to take ownership of that. But like David's situation here, the reality is he's feeling like I must have done something wrong. The reality is David didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. There were just evil, wicked people who were doing rude and harmful things, mistreating David, and God was permitting it, but God wasn't punishing David through it. God wasn't doing this as some way to get back at David. There was nothing David had done. And sometimes we we tend to just automatically think, what have I done? I must have done something wrong. And that's why everything's so hard in my life. What's my sin? He says, Jonathan, tell me, why did your father seek my life? What did I do? 
Well, Jonathan said to him, By no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. So Jonathan's trying, I believe, to encourage David. But you have to say here, he's clearly being a little bit naive to the reality of things. He says, why is your father trying to kill me? He says, no, 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 it, that couldn't be so. That's not going to happen, David. And, and, and I think in Jonathan's heart, his emotions and his logic, like any good friend, he doesn't like what David's saying. He doesn't want to hear David's going to die. He doesn't want to hear something like that would happen to David. So I think he's kind of trying to rationalize it away by saying, you know, far be it from, from that happening, David. By no means, he says, that's not so. If my father was trying to legitimately do that, I would know, I'd be able to forewarn you that that's not going to happen. And again, I, I think he just doesn't want to hear the reality of what is going on because he doesn't want to think that of his father, certainly. And he also doesn't want to consider losing his friend. I mean, David has become a close comrade in his life. And let's just be very frank. Sometimes when we don't want to accept what we know is true, but we just don't want to accept that it's true, we tend, like Jonathan here, to kind of try and deny it and suppress it. And we look for ways to kind of say, you know, that, that can't be so, and, and we kind of try and suppress the truth if we don't want to hear the truth. But David reinforces by taking an oath, saying, your father, verse 3, certainly knows that I found favor in your eyes, Jonathan. He knows that we're close and that we're friends. And therefore he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So David's trying to bring reality check back to the situation and shed a little light on the circumstance. And he says, Jonathan, I mean, put the pieces together here. He knows that you and I are close friends do you think he would tell you, I'm trying to murder your best friend and have all... He's, he's, he's keeping things from you. Of all people, he doesn't want you to be in the know because he knows that would grieve your heart. But he says, as truly as the Lord lives, he says, there's but a step, a step between me and death. Jonathan, it's, it's that close, it's that easy. And again, this, this statement of David here, there's but a step between me and death. There was a part of that that was true because at this point, Given the you know, efforts of Saul to try and assassinate David, truly one step in the wrong direction could mean the end of David's life. And David knew that. He sensed the brevity of his life and that just one step in the wrong direction and everything could be life-changing. One wrong step wouldn't just be a slight detour. One wrong step could be a life-changing event for David and he knew that. And again, I think for us, sometimes it's important to ask ourselves, you know, are, are we truly paying attention to the importance and the value of the steps that we take in life? Because sometimes we have this mentality where we just think, oh, well, I mean, it's only one step. It's only one step. I mean, but, but can I just say, you know, sometimes it just may be one step or a misstep, but sometimes a misstep can be a slip off a very steep cliff. A very steep cliff. And be very careful of the rationale or the wrong thinking signs where you just think, oh, it's just one step. It's just, it's one little misstep. It's one little step to the side off the path of the Lord. And, and, and that temptation there to tell us, it's okay. To, and, but David realized, no, every step counts. Every step. Every step is important. How careful are we to pay attention 
to each of the steps that we take in matters and situations in our life, they can be very critical. For David, it was a matter of life or death. And he realized that life is short and the brevity of life, you know, there is just a step between us and potentially dying tomorrow. We just don't know. Life is short in that way. And David was sensing it literally. So Jonathan, wanting to be encouraging to David, doesn't argue with him anymore over the matter. He just says, David, verse 4, whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. Jonathan wants to be an encouragement. Again, this is his friend. So he doesn't keep debating over the situation. He realizes what David says is true. And he basically says in verse 4 to David, David, how can I help? How can I help? Whatever you desire, David, tell me what you need. Tell me what I can do for you. Just tell me how I can support you and help you and I'll do it. So David, verse 5, said to him, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon which would happen on a a monthly basis, and I shall not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go and hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at the monthly feast, the, the, the new moon feast, he said, if he misses me at all, then say David earnestly asked permission that he might run over to Bethlehem. Remember, that was David's hometown to his city. For there's a yearly sacrifice there for all his family. And if Saul says, okay, that, that's well, then David says, then I'll know that your father is not angry towards me and, and that your servant is safe. But if Saul is very angry when he finds out that I went to visit my family and didn't show up to his feast at the new moon, then he says, we can be sure that evil is determined by him. So what David does, he just proposes a way to discern and verify what's true. He senses very clearly that there's murderous intentions against his life and that he cannot return to the throne anymore and that he needs to now move on. And he senses the time, I need to move on. I can't go back and be in your father's presence anymore. But look what David does. I like this about David. He patiently creates a moment to kind of prove it out. He says, look, let's do this. When the feast comes around for the new moon, I won't be there and I'll miss it for three days. And if your father says, where's David? And you say, well, he went to go visit his family in Bethlehem. If he says, okay, that's, that's fine. And he's not angry, then we'll know maybe I was wrong. And maybe he doesn't have ill intent in his heart. And maybe there could be peace between us and we can reconcile. But he says, if he gets fiercely angry, then that's a confirmation that it's not safe for me to be in his presence whatsoever. And therefore, verse 8, you shall deal kindly with your servant for you've brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, David says, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, he says, Jonathan, for why should you bring me to your father? He's just submitting his heart to the will of God. If, if I'm wrong, he says, then put me to death yourself, Jonathan. I, uh, if there's guilt within me, don't let your father kill me. Put me to death yourself, he says. But Jonathan said, far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? I would inform you ahead of time, David. And so David said to Jonathan, well, how will you tell me? In other words, how will you get me word if he has evil intention towards me? What's the plan here, he's basically saying. So Jonathan said to David, well, come, let us go out to the field. He's going to tell David his way of notifying him about what happens. So both of them went out into the field and Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel is witness when I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day and indeed there is good 
toward David, and I do send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So he lets David know this is, I'm going to sound this out with my dad, talk it through, and then I'll get word to you as to what is going to happen so that you'll know whether you're safe to return or whether you should flee and, and pursue safety that way. And then he says, verse 14, and you shall not only show the kindness of the Lord to me while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house, my descendants, forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's en enemies. And Jonathan again calls David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as his own soul. So at this point, what Jonathan does here these two men who have this powerful bond of friendship, Jonathan's basically doing two things as they're working out this plan for how he's going to notify David of what his father's intentions are towards him. And Jonathan basically does two things in these verses. First of all, he's encouraging David that he believes in God's calling and plan upon David's life. And he believes that David will not be killed, but reign as king. He mentions there in verse 13 May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. And he says, and when the Lord cuts off all your enemies. Now, when he makes those kind of references, may the Lord be with you as he was with my father. And when he cuts off all your enemies, what Jonathan is doing is encouraging David saying, look, David, even if you don't have faith in what God's going to do in your life, I do. And David, you may be doubting right now and you may be discouraged because of the way it looks to you and you're thinking, I know God said he called me to be the king. I know God said that he was going to do this in my life, but everything circumstantially says opposite to me. And it feels like that I'm going to die and I'm never going to make it and I'm going to end in a failure. And Jonathan is saying, that's not going to happen. I believe God's going to fulfill what he said for your life. And here Jonathan, as a good friend, is having faith in what God would do for David, even when David doubted. And then the second thing he does is basically asks David to promise to have mercy upon him and his household, his family descendants, once he ascends to the throne. He says, David, please promise me that when your enemies are being cut off, he says, verse 14, that you'll not only show the kindness of the Lord to me that I wouldn't die, but that you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. In other words, he's saying, David, we understand the cultural practice that when a new family ascends to the dynasty of a throne, they had this practice in that day that when a new family took over the throne or a dynasty, what they would then do is they would kill all the descendants and heirs from the prior family line that was the royal line so that there would never be an attempt to rebel or try and take back over the throne. So typically, culturally, what David should do when he became king was go murder Jonathan and all the other descendants of Saul, children and grandchildren, so not one of them could ever rebel or try and take the throne back from David's family line. And so Jonathan is saying, David, I know you're going to reign one day. Please have mercy upon me and my family. And we'll see how David fulfills this promise when we get to 2 Samuel, a great story there in 2 Samuel 9, how David honors his word in this way.
Well, verse 18, then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow's the new moon and you'll be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you've stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by that stone in Azel. And he says, this is what I'm going to do. I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And then I'm going to send a lad, a young boy saying, go and find the arrows, go collect my arrows for me. And if I expressly say to that lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, you'll know there's safety for you and no harm. But he says to David, if I say to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you, then that means go your way for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which I've spoken, indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. So they kind of set up this sort of code way of, of informing what the message is and he, not knowing who would be around. He basically says, David, I'm going to near this rock three days from now, I'll fire three arrows. And depending upon what message I give to the young man who goes and gets my arrows, one will say, hey, the arrows are on your side right there. That means it's safe. You can come out of hiding and come back to the palace with me and my father. But he says, if I say the opposite of that and I yell out to that young man chasing my arrows and say to him, hey, the arrows are beyond you, he says, verse 22, then that means, David, go your way for the Lord sending you away. It's not safe for you and it is now time for you to separate yourself and to move on to something else. Now, I find it very interesting. Notice verse 22, Jonathan's sense of discernment he realizes okay once this proves itself out he says it may just be and i accept that that the lord has sent you away notice jonathan that did not jive with his emotions i assure you of that this was his close friend nobody who has a close relationship family wise or friendship wise nobody likes separation right who likes separation? But he says sometimes it is part of God's divine purpose that the Lord has sent you away. Sometimes the Lord will send someone away. And this is what God was going to do with David. He was going to send David away. That was going to be very difficult for David and Jonathan to have that emotional, relational separation. But it was part of the purposes of God because there were things that God was going to do in David's life as the result of that separation and David being sent away. And sometimes this is what God does. Sometimes God will send someone away to work in their life, to do things. It was a part of how David would be prepared for the throne. So verse 24, let's conclude the story. David hid in the field. And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat at the feast. And the king sat on his seat and Jonathan arose with Abner by his side. And David's place was empty at the meal. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, the first day, for he thought to himself, something's happened to him and he's unclean. Surely he's unclean. So again, you could be ceremonially unclean for a meal. If you touched a dead body, David was a warrior. If you touched something unclean. So Saul just assumed the first day, giving a little sort of latitude. Oh, David's a warrior. Maybe he was fighting a battle and he's unclean, ceremonially unclean. He'll be at the feast tomorrow. But it happened the next day. Suspicion overwhelmed him. The second day of the month that David's place was empty and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission to go to Bethlehem, saying, please let me go. Our family has a sacrifice in the city. My brothers commanded me to be there. And now if I have favor in your eyes, 
Please let me get away to see my brothers, and therefore he has not come to the king's table. So he says, Dad, David needed to go home to Bethlehem. He didn't want to trouble you. He did ask permission. He didn't just ignore the feast and disrespect this gathering. He did come to me. He asked my permission, and I granted him leave to be able to go. Verse 30, here's the answer to what David said. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Wow, talk about a rude dad, huh? I mean, he now gets angry at Jonathan and begins to speak hurtful, cruel, critical words to his own son. And his anger just overtakes him and he starts to accuse his son now of really, uh, you know, horrible, degrading things he's saying to him in the Hebrew euphemisms that he's using there. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, he says, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me for he shall die. He says, Jonathan, don't you realize as long as he's alive, you're not going to get the throne. Now, he knew he wasn't going to get, but, but again, he is so determined to take matters into his own hand and to stop the inevitable he says, Jonathan, listen, you're the perfect candidate. You're friends with him. Go get him and bring him here so that I can put him to death. And Jonathan now has to choose between honoring God or honoring his own family member. Jonathan answered and said, why should he be killed? What has he done? So he has to challenge the sinful attitude in his own father's heart. He has to challenge the sinful desires in his own family member's heart and, and, and it creates, guess what? A little bit of tension. And this is probably some of the hardest area to do this sometimes. But let me just say something. There comes times when even among our own family members and we need to challenge the sinful fleshly attitudes in someone's heart out of honor for God. And to be willing to honor God more than to honor even our own flesh and blood sometimes. So he says, what has he done? Why should he be killed? Well, verse 33, Saul then cast a spear at him to kill him. And you thought you had a bad family life. By which Jonathan knew it was determined by his father to kill David. In other words, Jonathan finally got the point at that moment. <laughs> now a spear has been thrown at him. He tries to assassinate his own child. You want to talk about the insanity that comes into someone's mind when they're bent on their own self-seeking ways. I mean, willing to kill his own kid, willing to destroy his own children to pursue his own selfish desires. I wish I couldn't say that hasn't been played out with parents more than once. He's willing to put his own son to death just so he can have his own way. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger. Now a wedge has been driven between Jonathan and his father. He ate no food the second day of the month for he's grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. So it was in the morning thing, Jonathan went out into the field, appointed with David, and the lad was with him. And of course, he went through this protocol where he shot the arrows and gave the indication as he would to David that he shouldn't return and that he should run away, make haste. Verse 38, hurry, do not delay. Go and gather the arrows. The lad didn't know what they were doing only Jonathan and David knew of the matter and then Jonathan then gave his weapons to the lad sent him back into the city and as soon as the lad had gone David arose from a place toward the south fell on his face to the ground and they bowed down three times kissed one another again the 
ancient embrace where they would kiss the cheek. This was a typical greeting and a way of showing affection among the men in the culture. And they wept together. Again, two men weeping. That's a beautiful scene. And But David more so. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since you both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So at this point, these two men emotionally surrender to the will of God. This was not what they wanted. This was a separation. This was a very hard experience, but they are basically submitting through tears and great emotion to the will of God saying, nevertheless, the Lord's will be done. And at this point now, David will go out into a season of his life as he's now sent out and for the next 10 years will be in the wilderness being trained and prepared and going through a process of development in his life as we come to a transition now of this separation. And again, take notice, it was a difficult separation that was a transition point in David's life with God. And sometimes that's a turning point in the things that God's doing in our lives and for his purposes. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.